Good morning and welcome to Office Hours. If you're joining us from YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general questions about media production. And today we have a strong accessibility panel. So um, in our second hour, we're going to be talking today about disability inclusion in employment and what that looks like for different um, disabled populations and what employers can do to assist in making that easier for us. Right now, first question. Thank you, Laura, and uh, good morning, panel. Uh, the first question comes to us from David, Tim David from Winter Garden, Florida. What cameras for virtual meetings is able to adjust focus quickly? For example, for a sign language user to focus between face and hands as they talk. Brendan is up first. Yeah, so I have some experience uh, doing meetings and everything, and I notice that I I do I tend to turn off auto auto focus because it was just will keep doing that, and if the change in the lights or anything like that, I take off auto focus. So always want manual focus, and I sit in the same place, and then you're fine usually, and you can just leave the camera on how it is. If you sit, you're fine, and. Right now, my camera is uh, Nokia, um, so I can just leave it. Oh, my, mine is state interpret correction. Mine is stable, so it doesn't move around or anything. So, because if people move around, that's very distracting for a deaf person or interpreter. It's hard, it gets, becomes fuzzy. So, my advice is a stable camera, manual focus. Michael, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah, uh, same what Brendan just said, autofocus off. And then it's interesting with virtual, for example, like we have the hearing interpreter and everything. Usually they're in this, this box and they have a small box and they're always very close. And so they have to practice to be in that little area. And that's gone through a lot of, you know, interpreter training programs to make sure their signing space is small. And, you know, you have to go through a lot of training for interpreters. But for deaf people like me and Brendan, we, we kind of know uh, we're used to signing very small. But someone, maybe a deaf person who never has experienced a virtual event and just joined, they'll sign and their signs will be out of frame. So you have to back up more or your camera has to uh, expand its view. A deaf person who's experienced virtual means they'll sign small in front. And if not, then, you know, you need to just back out your camera and, and back it up more. And so you'll be able to catch all your signs. And I can sign bigger, but then uh, I'm, I'm a loud person. So big equals loud. Just not today. Alex? Yeah, for the most part, uh, we intend to turn off autofocus, as was suggested earlier, uh, because um, a lot of autofocus doesn't work very well. Now, I'm using a Sony camera, a Sony um, FX30, and uh, everything from the EV10 up. With the EV10, is about uh, $700, and this FX30 is probably like $1,700, and then you can keep on going. But Sony has very good autofocus that's based on your face. So no matter what you do with your face, and you move it around, you move it back, and, and the autofocus is going to keep on tracking that. In fact, I can put my hand up here and you'll see that I'm still in focus. Now, if I cover my face, you'll see that it drops immediately to my hand. And if I go back, it's going to drop immediately back to my face. 
So it's actually trained for looking for someone's face. It does get a little confused if you give it two faces. <laughs> it, it doesn't, you know, it, it, but it'll do the best it can to make it this good decision as to which one it thinks is closer typically. Um, and so, uh, so the Sony camera, I'm, I'm using again an FX30. Uh, I think Mitchell, who's going to come on next, has one that's a little bit better than that, or maybe the same one. I'm not sure. And then, one of the ones that I'm looking for that I'm looking at getting because I need a travel camera and a home camera because tearing this, my kid apart is really something I try to avoid is a less expensive EV 10. And the EV 10 appears to um, in most circumstances, not have overheating issues as long as you're in a, not in the sun. <laughs> so, so, um, so, and that's a much less expensive version of that has a very similar autofocus capability. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Alex is spot on, um, especially with the Sony range of cameras uh, that have probably one of the best autofocuses out there. Alex is using an FX30. I have its uh, earlier big brother, the FX3. They're almost identical. They certainly are in, in terms of what they do. So I think you're going to get the same results. But the interesting thing about the higher end cameras, not uh, not necessarily web cameras, is that they do such a great job of locking on your eyes. For example, if I were to roll back it's going to remain in focus and you might notice that my sign is more in focus because now the focus focal plane is at a different spot. So I think if I was moving my hands around a lot, it would be fine. And even if I got them in front of my face, you're still seeing my hands almost exclusively. So uh, the autofocus on the higher end cameras works great. The question is at what point does a webcam need to have the autofocus turned on as it does a better job of it? And I don't really know how to tell you that. I think it generally uh, the, the crossover point is based on price. And then once you reach $1,000 for a webcam, which is a lot of money, um, you know, go with a Sony or a Canon or a Panasonic, but they all have good autofocus on them. Alex, you wanted to jump back in? I'll differ with Mitchell a little bit. I've tested most of them. Uh, none of them are nearly as good as the Sony, <laughs> which I, I got mostly because uh, Mitchell and um, and Greg Gibson were the two that were using the Sonys. And I so I, I actually took most of the cameras for a test. And I would say that um, Panasonic has a reasonably good autofocus, but it's not as good as it's not nearly as good as the Sony's and everything else falls off pretty quickly after that. Um, and if you're not, if a lot, if your focal, if your aperture is pretty small, so like, a, or your chip, the sensor size is small, uh, it won't matter as much because most things are mostly in focus anyway. And so if you put it in autofocus or in manual focus and you lean in and out, it won't, it, you, it'll, you'll stay in focus. The reason it becomes so important for me is that I turn the aperture very open so that my background gets more blurry. And so I drop out of focus very quickly. So the autofocus became very, very important. I, I had it I had it on manual and I kept on going like this. You'd see me rocking during the show because I was uh, on another camera um, because I was trying to stay, get back into focus. And so because I was turning that that aperture so wide and, and everything was falling off. So that's when it starts to become important. Yeah, very much so. I know with mine, my uh, C920 occasionally will just go out of focus and I'll get a ping from the back and go and uh, yeah. fix your focus. <laughs> so yeah, um, the higher end cameras aren't uh, immune to that Some of that sometimes. Lori, you look question. perfect right now. Okay. Next go question ahead. coming up from uh, Robert Green in Los Angeles and here in our panel does anyone use what3words.com for more precise map locating when a street address is not enough? 
And there's an example of how to get to the AMC in Glendale. Go ahead, Robert. All right. Uh, well, I was just curious that this has been out for a while now, and but I don't think it's gotten a lot of adaptation. And I think it's kind of a cool thing because it can get you within like two or three feet of any particular spot. So if you look at that map example, to get to the AMC, it's in an outdoor mall. And if you want to meet someone in a specific place in a big venue, street address is not enough. You can kind of get very precise into the bottom corner where that little mark is. And it uses, you know, the website what3words.com and then it adds three words and that will geolocate you to a certain position. And I was kind of hoping it would get a more, uh, you know, more use and get more popular because sometimes, sometimes it's uh, not as, as useful. So I'm just curious if anyone else has, has checked it out and it might be useful accessibility wise for uh, getting somewhere, uh, uh, you know, very precisely instead of just a street address. Go ahead, Alex. I know Twit used to use this for the brick house. Yeah, so I so um, I guess my question is for Robert. Um, the so it you set your own location and then you give it just three random words. Is that the or it gives it gives you words? I'm not quite sure how it how the mechanism works. You just you put in a street address uh, like a regular map, and then you move the arrow around, uh, and it will it'll assign three words to that specific location. Oh, got it. And then, so, and then you can send yeah. that out, and that's telling someone exactly down to the down to the foot, two or three feet. Foot. Yeah, so like, I, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, so, like, if you know, um, like, if I want to send someone to to my location and maybe my backyard and have them go down the driveway, um, I can put it put the spot at the end of my driveway. Then they would know to go all the way down to that very specific location. Got it. Yeah, because it's. Um, because what I use right now is just sharing my location from, from my from my phone, uh, like I'm here, uh, or this is the this is the location there. But it seems like this one's more general. You don't have to share it with anyone. You can you can share this with as many people as as you needed to. Right? It's just it's not connected to anything. It's just a, just three random three random words that it assigns. Right? Correct. Three random words it assigns, and um, and then it comes up with a very simple web address. I mean, that's the address right there to uh, to the place where I marked the AMC. So that right. can be an easy link drop, and it gets you very precise. So you know, if you're an indoor mall, outdoor mall like the Americana, uh, then you can get to a very precise place. That's so, cool. That's cool. Yeah. Go ahead, Hershey. So I think I've heard of this before, and uh, there's an application called Waymaps is where I think the integration came from uh, with a three-word type of, uh, uh, I guess, location or geolocation. I think that the hardest part about any of these technologies is traction, and you know, certainly that this could work out great for us, but it's the adaptation or adaptation or adopt, adoption rather uh, of how some of this can be, you know, integrated within, let's say, our common used Google Maps or Apple Maps, um, because. I, like I said, I, I've seen this in another space somewhere else, but just can't pinpoint it if it, it might have been Waymaps. And just to have a quicker way to, as you said, say three words and say, this, go look at this, 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 and that's your exact pinpoint 
is much easier to, uh, uh, you know, say rather than uh, your actual location. If, oh, it's a building, I don't know what kind of building. So different disabilities. And I think this could be a really useful tool. Thanks for bringing it up. Tim, you had something to add? Yeah, this goes in a little bit different direction, but uh, you know, with with our panel and with our second hour topic, uh, there are several services now that will base the guidance to that location uh, based on accessibility. So it will tell you if there's stairs or ramps or elevators. Um, with the topic uh, recently on office hours on load in and load out, that could become very handy as well, right? To know, um, wait a minute, this guides me exactly where I need to go, but it's stairs and I have a cart full of gear. Um, so that could be interesting, uh, you know, in combination with what you mentioned, right? Here's an exact location of where we need to meet and here are the stairs or ramps in between. Exactly. Um... There's a lot of reasons why you would want to not just wheelchair mobility and things like that, that you would want to know stairs and uh, other obstacles. Next question. And it's from James Fosling in Minneapolis, Minnesota. James asks, is there a good way for those who don't use screen readers to know how to interface elements that are navigable to those using screen readers? Go ahead, Mandy. Well, the um, elements that are properly labeled and navigable using the keyboard will work well for a screen reader user. Um, for websites, documents, and PDF files, using the proper um, hypertext markup language, also known as HTML, to label the elements properly will help a screen reader user navigate. Uh, screen reader users um, utilize single letter quick navigation keys such as H for heading, B for button, E for edit field, R for region. There's a few other more that can get you through some form controls. And we can also pull up lists for the elements. Um, and um, one good example of an element that web developers have started using less or even stopped using entirely over the years would be headings. And if you're just using font changes to indicate a heading, that doesn't help a screen reader user um, navigate to that information quickly and easily. So defining the elements, um, making sure you know that that text is a heading and um, we can move through those again in documents, websites, and PDFs. Now it used to be more of a, just a website thing, but now it, that carries over to PDFs and uh, documents now. You can have headings and navigate by those in forms mode. Also, um, if you go to the web aim, it's W-E-B-A-I-M, I believe it's .org. Their wave plugin tool is um, pretty good at giving a user-friendly evaluation of your website. And um, I've used it and I like it because there's no login needed. It loads right inside the browser. So if you're on a web page that is a portal that you've logged into, as long as you're logged in, it can actually grab that and actually look at those elements, even though you're behind a um, login wall. Go ahead, Brendan. Oh, thank you. Yes, um, that's a good point uh, that that was made. I think that 
um, when you're talking about a website, um, simpler is better, right? So you don't want it to become too complex. So you want to make sure that it can track. Um, also, I would say if you're using something like, let's say, NVDA, um, and like JAWS, um, one of those two things would be a good application. Or um, if you're wanting to do something like we were talking about before, like if it's not working, then you have to make modifications and switch to something else. On a phone, of course, it becomes more complex. Um, your approach becomes more complex when you're using an app. So you want to make sure that, um, you know, the reader, you can read the list, the form properly. So I think, you know, just being aware of that. Next question. And it's from Paul Buchan in Columbus, Ohio. Paul asked, as someone on the back end or behind the scenes of shows, what are some things that I can do to make sure our events are accessibility friendly when it's not a priority to our clients? Go ahead, Mandy. Thank you for that question, Paul. And um, one tip that I like to give is that, um, and I believe this is still a requirement in Zoom, the default is that captions are not enabled and it's up to the meeting host to enable those captions for the meeting. Um, another helpful, um, you, you could, if you are using slideshow or materials that you put on the screen, if you're able to share a file copy of that, such as a PDF or PowerPoint file or um, keynote and other just turn those into files that would be helpful for individuals who use screen readers and magnification software because when they're when they're viewing those slideshows in zoom it's, it's a smaller window like you're seeing me in right now and um, it's, it's difficult to see text and other information in those slideshows typically Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, that's me. And uh, I will add uh, to what Mandy just said. She covered the back end very well. Um, it's also on the front end. You can do things. Uh, my good friend, Hershid Trivedi, and I have had many conversations about how I can be more descriptive when I'm giving an answer to explain what it is that they're seeing if we're showing something. And uh, I think that's fairly critical. Uh, uh, Hershid's been training me. Uh, over the last few years to uh, to get to that level. So it's not just a back-end thing, it's also a front-end thing in the uh, as far as the show goes. Go ahead, Brendan. I think you're right. I think turning the caption on is a big problem. Um, I think typically many Zoom meetings, um, when they're organizing, they think that it automatically generates. Um, but that's the problem. It, it, it's odd. The default is off. So I think it has to be manually turned on. So I think that's the constant struggle. And three years ago when COVID happened, we dealt with this, just having to ask the host, please make sure you turn on, you know, the captioning. So you're right. I think it's important to be aware and make sure that they know that it's not actually turning on. You have to manually turn it on. The organization has to be you know, able to go ahead and turn it on manually. So, and then another point I wanted to make was for PIN, I think it's important to make sure that you have that. If you could please, if anyone needs that, you know, as soon as possible, make sure that, um, you know, that's ready to go. So just my thoughts on that. <laughs> go ahead, Albert. Yeah, I think um, some of the things I want to share are making, uh, recording the the event 
and making them available for later viewing, I think is important because, you know, people with cognitive learning disabilities may have a hard time processing everything on the site. Uh, and, um, uh, also it gives them a, a, a feeling of a relief that, you know, oh, like, like anxiety relief that, oh, I don't have, like, if, even if I miss some information, important information right now, I'll have always have a, a backup resource that I can, uh, resort to. Also, another thing is, um, when you have the recording available, uh, make sure to also include transcription, um, of the, of the uh, recording. And, um, also keep in mind that not all, um, not everyone in the world have the access to the fast internet, like 5G. And this is also part of uh, accessibility, which is that, um, you know, usually when you are having a, a event with, you know, all, like five or, you know, like hundreds of people, uh, turning on videos and things like that, it can be very, um, high loads of, uh, 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 data. So, um, you know, maybe people in India or like a rural areas may have a hard time accessing, uh, the event. So, you know, uh, for Zoom, um, you can join via audio call, uh, right? So things like that enables, uh, you know, people far away or, you know, uh, who don't have e uh, equal access, uh, be able to, um, access your event as well. And, and one last thing is, um, if you, if you're, if the event, uh, will have any kind of content that may trigger, uh, PTSD of, of the audience or anxiety or any, has any kind of sensitive information, I think it's always good to give, uh, a previous, uh, like, warning beforehand so that audience uh, can know um, also making it uh, you know inclusive uh, so that and 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 you know it's okay make maybe like a saying things like oh it's okay if you uh, need to take a break uh, or something like that you know um, so that uh, you create a safe environment for everyone go ahead Brendan you want to jump back in Yes, I just wanted to add, it made me think of this. So I think that um, when you're talking about like transcripts, um, that's important to add that. Um, make sure that the company understand it's important that sometimes they refuse transcripts. Um, I think they're afraid things are going to be leaked. It's proprietary information or information they don't want out there. So um, make sure they understand the need and why it's needed to have it transcripted. And, you know, you say that's something that we really absolutely need. Um, and I think that's true with people with ADHD. I know as a person, um, you know, obviously I, I need to keep tracking what's happening. And if I'm able to read it, then that helps me. I can read it at a later date. Yes, and um, the Northwest ADA Center actually put a blog post up on this, which I've put in our chat. Um, if somebody could pass that from our chat to the um, event chat, that would be great. Next question. And it's from you, Laura. Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas, asking, has anyone on the panel had an interaction with a service dog? And what questions did you have about that interaction? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I guess the easy answer to that question is don't interact with the uh, service, dog, service dog. The service dog is always working, even when it's just sitting there at a restaurant uh, next to their master. Um, you don't know what you're doing when you go and you pet or go, ooh, it's a cute dog. You're distracting them and you're messing with their training. Um, even if you ask the, uh, the person 
uh, that the dog belongs to, um, they're remiss if they don't tell you, please don't touch the dog or talk to the dog. The attention is between me and the dog. So you don't want to interrupt that uh, that relationship. I know it's very hard when there's a super cute dog there to go up and you want to pet it. But uh, if you see that service uh, uh, dog uh, uh, thing that they wear on their uh, on their backs, don't do it. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, I agree with Mitchell. Uh, it, you know, it, it's important. It's it's uh, it's tough. This cute little fuzzy face is staring at you, and you just want to. You want to show it some love, but um, uh, but it can be dangerous, right? If this uh, if this guide dog gets used to that interaction with the human, and somebody's relying on that dog to safely cross the street and gets distracted, uh, that could mean serious injury to somebody. So it, it's it's very important, uh, and it is tough. Uh, but you know, feel free to ask questions. I mean, I say that I'm I'm not a guide dog user. I don't want to impose anything on anybody, but um, but it's better to ask and you know make sure you're doing the right thing. Uh, than to make an assumption, you know, well, it looks like the dog's on a break, so I'm going to go up and, and show it some love. Um, you know, definitely ask, but I agree with Mitchell, uh, you know, take some time to to educate uh, yourself on the importance of that and, um, you know, and and keep keep everybody safe, keep the the animal itself safe and the, the person using that dog for assistance safe. Yes, and uh, I wanted to add to this, always take the handler's cues. If they're telling you, um, if you need to talk to me, let's move to the side out of this uh, stream of traffic and have the conversation about what my dog's doing in your establishment, do that. Um, I had a situation um, working my first dog in a mall, on a busy, a busy mall on a Saturday, a uh, security guard came up to me and they wanted to run alongside me and have a full-blown conversation with me as we're moving in and out of probably six or 700 people. And I can't pay attention to the dog at that point. You know, I said, to him, let's step out of the traffic. Let's step to the side and I'd be happy to talk to you. He's like, no, no, keep going, keep going, keep going. And I'm like, you don't understand. That's unsafe. That's very unsafe. I need to either pay attention to the dog or pay attention to you. And when I'm moving, the dog, the, the dog is my safety. Um, so yeah. Uh Mandy. I just wanted to add that it's important to uh note to not offer food or sneakily slip food to a service animal um, that could make them sick and also just the their handler will ensure that they're given adequate breaks for food rest and other bodily functions and uh, again just keep in mind when they're wearing their harness they are working but don't even if they're not that's the food offering is off off limits at all times Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and then there, the, the other thing I did want to say is there are service animals and there, then there are also emotional support animals. Um, two do not have the same legal requirements, but we could do, we, I could do a whole hour just on this topic and the handler and what, what the access requirements are for a service dog versus a, um, emotional support animal. And uh, the issues that we are, as, as I prepare to transition to my next dog, um, what a lot of those access issues are. Next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Jack asks, how do you change your speaking cadence and words per minute speech 
so it may be signed or captioned. Go ahead, Michael. Okay, wow, that's a, actually a great question. It's a great question. Thank you, I appreciate your question, Jack. There, um, There's lots of different thoughts on this, right? So um, it kind of depends. For example, what we're doing right now for this particular web show, um, things like your cadence, um, you know, your sign accent, if you will, right? This It really kind of depends on how you communicate. If you are a hearing person um, and you're speaking as you normally would um, with your vo voice, with your intonation, then the interpreter should and is required to show that. So if you're excited or if you're down, um, then it would be then conveyed through the interpreter. Um, if there's an accent in your voice as a hearing person, that would be conveyed. Now, um, the tricky part is the captioning, right? The captioning is very flat. It doesn't show any of the tone in the affect. So I have to figure out based on the words, what the cadence is of the hearing person. Not The interpreter is not there in the picture. So I have to just solely look at the words. It's very monotone, right? So I'm just looking at the words. It's not easy for us to kind of figure out exactly what it is, you know? And so it really kind of feels like we're shut down from a lot of that. But if you're watching a TV show, let's say, or um, you're watching a movie, then um, let's say I'm watching, I don't know, I can't think of a show, but something that's popular right now, like a TV show. Oh, if I'm watching Luther, let's say, right? And um, that's a British TV show. Um, when I'm watching that, they always have, for example, things like gun, bang, um, they'll have brat background noise because I obviously can't hear that the gun has went off, right? So I will see, it'll be in parentheses, gun, bang, or gun fire. Um, and then floor is creaking in parentheses because um, I can't hear that it's creaking. And so that indicates for us or tells us that there's other things, other sounds going on. But for a virtual meeting like this, it's actually very difficult um, uh, we really need to know if the interpreter is good and matching the tone and affect of the current speaker. Um, I think, I'm really, I mean, of course, it really depends on who's speaking. Um, 100 words per minute, let's say, the interpreter would have a hard time keeping up with 100 words per minute. Um, you'd have to slow down a bit for the interpreter to catch everything. Um, and the interpreter would say, oh, if you could kind of slow down just a little bit for the interpreter, we'd appreciate it. And that, that's pretty typical. Um, I, I think that covers your full question. Thank you, Jack. Go ahead, Alex. Uh, I, I think of it as just another language. And, uh, and, and for when I'm in other countries, I've worked in a lot of countries, I do all the same things that I do when something's being signed, um, which is that I tend to slow down a little bit. I tend to not make my sentences as complex. I tend to, uh, you know, to, um, uh, not use, you know, use simpler, a simpler process, mostly because it has to go through a translation. It's, it's that, that I, I know that it will be more understandable <laughs> if I'm more concrete, um, in, in how I talk. And that's, but again, that's how I deal with any other language that I'm speaking in. It's not particularly slow. It's about 25% slower. Um, I enunciate a little bit more clearly. And again, it's mostly uh, just makes it easier uh, to, to do that. But that's how I go into any, any other language, just because it's going through a translation process. And I know that if I give, if I give something that's more straightforward uh, to, the, to the translation process, it's, it's just it's, it's easier. That's, at least that's how I approach it. 
Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with Alex. And in the case of me being the reader here today, um, I don't presume to know what it is and how hard it is or how I'm even being rated by our ASL interpreters. Um, I'm a voiceover person by trade, so I naturally want to pronounce everything uh, a little bit more. So I would say that I slow down a little bit and make sure that I enunciate so that there's some words that sound alike. Um, I'm getting them out as clearly as I can. Um, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful towards our signers, but I don't want to make their job any harder than it has to be. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, totally agreed. You know, a, a common term you hear in the accessibility world world is universal design or universal design for access, uh, UDL in the education world. And, uh, you know, what that means is designing something so that it that it works across the board. So it doesn't have to be uh, modified as much to be accessible. And I think in a speaking tone, that fits very well. If you talk clear with a voiceover style like Mitchell and enunciate, uh, that's going to be much more uh, universally designed and, you know, makes it easier for captioning tools. It makes it easier for interpreters, makes it easier for language translation. And then for everybody that is hearing your language with their own ears, then uh, it's easier for them to understand as well. Go ahead, Brendan. Yeah, this is great answers. Uh, one thing I wanna throw out is uh, not everyone can speak their normal tone and you just have to work with other people. Some people don't know how to speak clearly and don't know how to do that. And you can't force people to do that, honestly. Um, it just other people have different disabilities, too. So I want to throw that out there that you just you want to work with what they got. Michael, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, I just wanted to add something. When you hire an interpreter. Always make sure that you talk to them and say, you know, what are we talking about today? What's the content of the speech? What are we doing? The more you can uh, prepare the interpreter, the more they can be ready with their stuff and they have all the words and the terms. You don't want to just hire an interpreter who you also want an interpreter who's qualified. You want to, you know, maybe there's someone who's more of an artistic interpreter, but you're going into like a computer class and they have no idea what's going on. And so they might not know what words to use and what signs to use. So it depends on their training and their vocabulary. For example, we have very specific interpreters who can interpret in courts, for example. Um, not everyone can do a court interpreting. And we have some, well, often interpreters will sign something and I'll watch them. And if the hearing person say has a stutter or an accent, maybe they're from another country, the interpreter does let me know that, that they're stuttering or they're, they're have an accent. So that way, um, I'm aware and just make sure that you hire the right kind of interpreter. Now I work as an HR or in an HR office and I'm always making sure to hire interpreters who are skilled in that specific area. Um, HR is a profession. It's equal and we, we have to know what we have specific language. We have to know what we're talking about. I guess what's the appropriate term I'm looking for. We don't want incompetence. When you're talking with clients, you don't want to sound incompetent. You want to sound like you actually know what you're talking about 
HR stuff. Brendan, you wanted to jump back in? Yeah, tiny bit, let me add here. And, and thank you, uh, Michael, for adding that. Not Mitchell, but thank you, Mitchell, too, but Michael. Um, so I deal with a lot of that in my work history. There's, It's very important to have the right interpreter because if not, they'll look down on me. And so it's very important to have that. And I really appreciate that. And especially in a job search too. And, and we can talk about that in the next hour. Absolutely. I just want to remind our audience that you can add questions for the first or the second hour at any time and uh, vote on the questions that are there because we're going to talk about the questions um, more by the ones that are more heavily voted. Next question. From Simon Rea in Midlands, UK, what advice or guidelines would you offer for writing the alt tags on an image-heavy website like the Office Hours Global site? Go ahead, Brendan. I'm not, I'm not speaking for a person, uh, for everyone, but I would say, again, keep it simple as possible. You don't... You don't want to, you know, you got to put yourself with someone in a blind uh, person's shoes and say, okay, if it's this huge description, maybe you have 10 or 20 images and they have to listen to that whole description. So just have that perspective and make it more concise and clear and what's important for that image. Yeah, um, I think Simon knows this, but if you go back on Alex's channel, there is an episode that uh, Ken Jordan, who originally did the Office Hours Global website, and I did, I want to say it was in, 2020, in late 2020, early 2021, at talking about alt tags and a particular graphic that we have on the Office Hours Global website and the meaning and uh, just the, the couple of little tweaks that made it so different. Um, I invite everybody to kind of go back and look at that um, particular uh, episode. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, for the 70 millimeter IMAX film release of Oppenheimer, IMAX engineers ported the Palm OS software that runs the real unit that feeds the film through the projector to an emulator. What older production technologies have you seen still in use? Go ahead, Alex. Uh, in uh, probably the early 90s, um, Industrial Light and Magic built a, a uh, or bought a arm. It's a remote control arm called a Cooper. Uh, it's K-U-P-E-R. Um, and uh, it's a Cooper system. And basically it will, uh, you can program it to just keep on doing the same thing over and over again. But it's very simple. Uh, it takes a floppy drive um, and you would put just the numbers, just the coordinates of what it needs to do and where it needs to go, and it would do what it needs to do. But it's simply a spreadsheet, basically, that you input into into that process. The Cooper system is still being used. I saw it only a couple months ago, um, and so this is 30 years later. It's still being in use, still using a floppy, <laughs> and uh, and and uh, it was, but it but it, it works, and it works every single time. It's a very powerful system. But but it's still like this very old uh, and but it, it actually in many cases is more stable than a lot of the other stuff that's come out since then. Um, it simply does it. But we now use very complex software to de define it. So we're using uh, a, a Motion Builder, um, uh, Maya, um, Cinema 4D. Uh, people are using to to drive those numbers. 
but it still all goes down to the spreadsheet that is saved to a, an old floppy drive that's pretty, got a lot of fingerprints on it <laughs> and because it's the only one we have. Um, and, uh, and, we, and you push it in and hit go. Wow, Alex, that, that is kind of scary if they would ever lose. They, they I, I imagine find another ILM one. somewhere has stockpiled parts for it. I'm sure that they could find another floppy drive somewhere, but there's just one one laying around that gets used all the time. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's clear that it's been used a lot. You talk about a single point of failure in a production. Oh, wow. That would, yep. that would give me pause. But I guess after 30 years, they kind of know it's just going to do its job. Next question. From Simon Rea in Midlands, United Kingdom. Are the panel or is the panel aware of any tips to make chat GPT's responses more concise or otherwise more screen reader friendly? Go ahead, Albert. Yeah, so uh, I'm really excited that uh, there's a question about chat GPT um, because I'm an avid user. Um, so for chat GPT, you can actually put in um, prompt in your prompt uh, when you ask questions you can add at the end uh answer concisely or you can even give a specific uh limit to the number of words um for example if i want to ask like what is quantum physics versus what is quantum physics you must answer concisely or describe quantum physics in less than 100 words then it'll answer according to the prompt. Um, if you want, um, and, and I want to also share another um, option. Um, I know ChatGPT, you have to pay, but there's also Bing search, right? B-I-N-G, Microsoft Bing search. And um, Microsoft Bing search uh, has, um, you can choose the accuracy level of the answer. So there's creative, uh, there's balanced and precise. And if you choose precise, answers are going to be very concise and it, it'll be straightforward to chat. Um, so if you, if you want to, if you want to go that route, you know, you don't, so that you don't have to keep writing down or adding in the prompt, uh, in less than 100 words or concisely, then you can just go to Bing, um, and, uh, type in the prompt, um, and then choose precise mode first and then type in the prompts there. Um, and by the way, Bing uses the same uh, ChatGPT. Bing, uh, Microsoft Bing uses uh, ChatGPT to um, uh, work with the Bing, uh, to make the Bing. So uh, it's the same thing. Um, also uh, uh, about Bing, you can actually ask in different languages too, not just in English. Um, in the search bar, you can, you know, write, uh, write in English or Korean or different languages. Um, and um, there's one more thing about being that I really uh, use often is that um, you can actually speak uh, to the being uh, and then hear back the answer. So, so I don't even use a screen reader at that point. You know, you know what I mean? So um, uh, you can speak. And then it'll respond back in voice. So uh, on the search bar, there is a, a mic. Uh, it's not it's different from dictation, but um, you you just ask question and then it'll respond back in in um, voice. But for that, if you want to ask in different languages like Korean, uh, other than English, 
then you need to set the you need to change the language in the Bing system. So uh, like in, it's on the same page, and then you need to change the uh, language to different language. Um, and then you need to uh, ask question via voice, and it will respond back in in that language. Um, things like this are are some of the uh, ways. But I guess the since you, if if the question the person who asks question is more familiar with uh, ChatGPT and already familiar, then you know the only thing you need to do is uh, add thing in the prompt add uh, like a condition like a less than one hundred words or answer concisely. Alex, in addition, in addition to the length of the of the uh, answer, you can set up how you want ChatGPT to answer the question. So you can say you are this kind of person. You are an engineer. You are a teacher. You are a programmer. You can define where its uh, its reference point is of how it's going to answer the question, and then you can also tell it how it how you want to answer it. So, for instance. Um, I asked, uh, I, my daughter and I were talking about ChatGPT and I said, explain, you know, uh, explain gravity. You are Richard Feynman and explain uh, uh, gravity to a fifth grader. And it, what it did is it took the reference of what it knows about Richard Feynman and it answered the question in reference with the, with the word cadence that would be uh, an average fifth grader with the examples are from school, the processes, you know, so you can set, set a lot of uh, diagrams. You can even do things like change the Lexile score. Lexile score is the complexity of the text. So you can say, give, answer this question with a Lexile of 400 or 1500. Um, and it may not be perfectly accurate to that Lexile. I tweeted this out and the Lexile group pinged me and said, it's not accurate, <laughs> but it's, but it does make a, a marked difference in the complexity of the, of the paragraphs uh, if you change those scores around. So there's a lot of, in, in addition to length, you can also have it be answer in simple terms or in more uh, complex terms. Go ahead, Brendan. Yes, um, I think that's good that you can make it at a fifth grade level. Um, I think it's important to note too, for accessibility purposes, um, I want to have language options and that really does help. Um, I always, you know, when I'm setting something up, I usually put it at about a third grade level. I think that's accessible for most people. And I, especially for the deaf world, I think that's most accessible. Um, most of people don't read beyond a third grade level. I think that's helpful um, to make sure that it's accessible for that community. So very good. Cool. Yeah, um, that, that's something I haven't actually completely waded into yet. So I'm kind of, th this conversation has kind of got me going. I want to go look at the Bing thing. Next question. From TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota, looking for both a still and video camera recommendation for my vacation next year. Looking to travel very light, used my iPhone with great success last year. Considering an Insta360 or similar to capture video, if it can be edited to normal view. Go ahead, Mitchell. I think uh, you're already on track uh, using an iPhone. I mean, even my ancient iPhone 6 is going to do a pretty good job of doing that. Um, I would be concerned about going to an Insta360 because if you're on vacation, it means you're moving a lot and you may be uh, dealing with it handheld. It's so tiny and finicky maybe that um, you don't want to use that unless it's uh, part of a vlogging uh, solution. 
if you wanted to go with something outside of your uh, iPhone, I'd go with like a Sony ZV series uh, camera, which does video and still, and it's like a handheld DSLR, and it's uh, I've got one over my shoulder. I can't show it too easily. But um, that probably would work best for you. If you make it easy, you'll use it more. And you need something that you don't have to worry about unpacking it and setting it up. So uh, I think that iPhone is your still your best bet for light and easy. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I'll, I'll beg to differ with with uh, with uh, with Mitchell um, in this area. I think that the Insta360 X3 it looks like a great camera for this kind of thing. Um, it can be put on a selfie, um, a selfie stick, and you can simply walk, and it will in post stabilize it based on um, based on the movement of the camera. Um, and so it'll stabilize the image, and then you can also pan and pan around in that image. And the Insta360 software is is really good, and with the cameras that we've tested so far. I have found that I take camera, I took this FX30 to on vacation a couple weeks ago. I take bigger cameras on vacation, but I almost never use them. I almost always use my iPhone because I, I need the GPS. I need the information that I have there that I need when I took it, like all the things that, that come with my phone. Uh, and I have, you know, the iPhone 14 or whatever. So I have really good, it's a really good camera. So for vacation photos, I might take my good camera out a couple times to take the best photos of my family or of my kids um, that I want to keep. So it'll be like a moment that I, I grab. But my general purpose uh, capture, and I, I very rarely miss my uh, larger camera when I go out with it, the X3 um, will add something different to what you can do because you really can wander around and show people things and, and everything else. And it you just pull it out. You can literally just pull it out and hold it, and it's going to um, do a pretty good job of getting rid of your hand uh, or the selfie stick. It'll actually remove the selfie stick as it goes in. So it looks like if you hold it down by your waist, it just looks like you're walking, and it's just uh, it's just grabbing onto it. It's a pretty it's a pretty amazing device. Go ahead, Brendan. That's a good choice. I think I would use that Samsung phone. Phone I use that most of the time. It's actually a great phone. It's like an IT, I4, iPhone 14. It has 8K video capability. So I really like that. And, you know, for the fact that it's so easy to have with you, I've got it right there in my pocket. So that's nice. Also, I would add that uh, the gimbal, I think having that handheld is really nice. It's more stable. You don't have the shaking that you would have. I mean, something that's very small, has a small tripod. I really like that. And then you can pick it up and you're ready to walk again. So um, the phone is great. Uh, it's automatically, you know, adjusts and you can move quickly with it. You don't have to worry. Um, you can also use something like this um, where your pen, where you can hold it from a far position. So that's another option too. So, you know, just a couple thoughts on that. Next question. From Simon Rea from Midlands, UK. Do you have any advice for people joining a Zoom call from a laptop to reduce the camera shake that can occur when using a built-in laptop camera? Go ahead, Brendan. Yes. So you want to make sure that it's on a stable surface, right? Um, not on your lap where your lap's going to be more apt to move. Obviously, a stable surface makes sense. Um, then that's going to solve a lot of your problems, a tripod or something like that, something that's stable that's not going to shake. So I would definitely try to fix it at some location. Um, um, you want to make sure, you know, you're hitting the table, which could jar your laptop as well. 
Um, if you can get some sort of, sometimes they fall off. Like if you have, or ones that are like, you know, something that you can stabilize on the top of your laptop so it doesn't keep falling. If you can adjust it to where it's not going to move, that would be recommended. So yeah, that would, that would, you know, and just don't touch it, right? Once you get it set up, don't touch it again. <laughs> so go ahead, Mandy. As Brendan stated, a sturdy desk or table could reduce movement of the laptop. Although if the shaking is caused by using the keyboard or the touchpad on your laptop, for that, I would suggest what I do um, using an external keyboard and mouse to minimize the amount that I have to touch the keyboard. And if you don't have much space for the keyboard in front of the laptop, you could use the keyboard tray or just use the keyboard on your lap. Alex? Uh, yeah, I, I almost always separate whatever is holding my camera, whether that's a laptop or a camera or, or a webcam. I separate that from the table that I'm working from. Um, so I, with an air, an air gap. <laughs> so so by, you know, so I have like, for instance, on this case, I have it on a separate tripod, but I might put it on a monitor, but that monitor will be on a separate, some, some kind of separate device that isn't uh, the table that I'm typing on, um, because the vibration, especially anything as the whatever support um, you have for the camera, if it's the laptop, like sometimes I put my laptop on a stand that I kind of pull open. It's not a very, you know, any, as as the laptop is suspended higher or or away or a camera, the vibration becomes uh, accentuated. So you want to make sure that um, you're not you know, you, and we deal with this a lot with cameras in general. So we're very sensitive to, to shake. Um, and so, but separating that out um, with something heavy is usually good. Next question. Next question from Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. I'm beginning to wonder if Tenet with dialogue buried heavily versus other sound was an experiment in pushing more people to use assistive tech. Might we see more of this in the future? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, there's a trend um, by many filmmakers to want you to be more immersed in the in the in the the actual uh, show. So they want you to feel the show as opposed to just listening to the words. Um, and so they've been pushing the dialogue further and further into the um, into the environment. And so Tenet is one is probably one of the most likely examples. And the irony, of course, is that. You can barely understand what's happening in Tenet when you can see, hear the dialogue or see the dialogue. When you understand everything they're saying, it's a, it's a hard to follow movie. And when you, um, uh, so when you can't understand all the words, it becomes very difficult to understand. It's a completely different movie if you turn the captions on, um, uh, you know, for, for most people. Uh, I don't think that they intended to do that, but I do think that the, the unintended consequence is that, uh, that, I know that my family will not go to a uh, Christopher Nolan film uh, in the theater because they can't turn the captions on. They 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 have like they there's certain filmmakers now that my you know my my kids and my wife will just go. I I don't I want to see it at home so that I understand what's happening. You know like you know and and so uh, so it's an interesting thing that people are you know that 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 the way that the audio is being mixed is actually pushing people some people out of the theater. Um, because they, they need the captions on because the dialogue is so embedded into the background that they don't understand what all what's happening. We leave the captions on almost all the time now, you know, like it's it, it, with the newer with the newer shows because it's hard to understand what's going on otherwise. 
Go ahead, Mitchell. Plus one, what Alex just said. I watched it entirely with the captioning on. I wasn't uh, feeling bad at all. I didn't feel older. I just did it because I didn't know what they were saying. Go ahead, Tim. You know, plus two, I, I agree with what Alex said, right? They're they're trying to make these films more immersive. I think more and more people are are building home theater systems that are, uh, you know, surround sound or, you know, even Dolby Atmos. And they have the capability to to have that more immersive sound. But on the flip side, technology companies are having to build in new features so that we can understand these films. So, uh, you know, uh, dialogue boost and things like this. And I mean, closed captioning has been around for a while, but, you know, we see more and more articles talk about, uh, you know, younger generations that don't need captions for their hearing that are leaving captions on all the time. Um, so I think it's an interesting trend that movie makers are, you know, trying to make these more immersive. The tech companies are countering that with features that help us understand things better. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, if that if that continues and kind of who wins that tug of war. Wow, this has been a great conversation and a great first hour. Alex, can you give us a little bit of a preview of what's coming up? next week yeah absolutely um yeah the uh, of course tomorrow is our um the uh i guess we call it introspection day so if you have questions about what we're doing here why we're doing it all those things also ten, it tends to be more of a um uh more of a philosophical day so if we are uh, we may be asking questions uh, more about the industry. We tend to talk a lot more uh, in, in in much longer answers uh, to a lot of these things. So so those are the things that happen on Sunday. Um, so you're more than welcome to come by. Also, um, we have a uh, a pretty good a, a great one set up for next week uh, on Monday. Uh, we have AI pro productivity. So we're not going to talk about necessarily mid journey, but we will be talking about how we use AI. Um, in, uh, in, in, you know, for other things that we're working on there. Uh, we're going to talk about the Apple Vision Pro, just what we know so far. So we're going to keep updating our all of you on the Apple Vision Pro because it is uh, probably going to be a pretty big platform. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that and also Reality Composer Pro as a, as a small introduction. We'll probably be doing some labs in the future. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, on Wednesday, we have uh, Game Sound with Rob Bridget. Uh, Rob Bridget um, is the author of Working with Sound and Leading with Sound. And so he's going to be talking about uh, Game Sound. Uh, or and um, and then video framing on Thursday. This may seem like a simple pro uh, thing, but a lot of people haven't want to understand more about why you frame things in a certain way. And so we'll be talking a little bit about that. Um, Friday, we have uh, Boomerang Carnet. <laughs> so Boomerang is, uh, we move a lot of gear in and out of the country and you need Carnets to do that. And so we're bringing in the specialists to talk a little bit about how that actually happens. Um, next week, this on Saturday, we will be talking about uh, brainstorming accessibility. Um, so, so we're going to be brainstorming on what subjects we'd like to cover in the future here. So stay tuned for all of those things um, as uh, uh, that's what's coming up next week. Thank you. As we prepare. Um, yeah, now we're going to jump into our second hour and start talking about, a little bit about um Employment and uh, how that affects uh, all of us in different ways. Tim, do you want to take it over? Thanks, Laura. 
And uh, looking forward to the discussion. Thanks for the active uh, discussion this morning during the first hour. And and uh, we want to talk about employment. Uh, we've got a great group of folks to ask questions of, um, both from an accessibility standpoint and accommodation. We've got folks that that understand the the accommodation side, what's needed. And then we have job seekers with disabilities on our panel today. So, you know, we want to hear from them. We want to learn, um, you know, what what they face so that if you are a if you are an employer that has someone with a disability apply for a job, how do you accommodate them and how do you make sure you're giving them uh, what they need to be a successful candidate in your job and not excluding them? You know, a lot of people, it's it's really easy to see an accommodation request come across and, and refuse that because you think it's going to cost too much money and you've never even given that candidate a chance. So so we want you to hear from folks. We want you to hear, hear some statistics about uh, the employment market for people with disabilities. And to, to kick off this conversation today, we're gonna jump right into some uh, some statistics and some slides. So Laura has prepared a little bit of uh, information for us just to start the conversation, and then we'll we'll hear from the panel on some of these thoughts. So uh, so Laura, why don't you go ahead and share with us the information that, that you've prepared. Give me one second here while I set up my screen. And while Laura's setting that up, feel free to uh, to add some questions for the panel. If you have questions about how to search for a job as a person with a disability, how to meet the access requirements of someone with a disability if they come to apply. This is, um, can you guys able to see it now? Yes. Okay. This is a um, just a quick look at the percent of the population and what education level they have. On the left side of your screen, you have those who do not identify as having any form of disability. On the right-hand side of the screen, you have those who identify as having a disability. 9% um, of the population who does not have a disability has less than a high school education and we're, um, identifying that with a little schoolhouse, 18% of those who identify as a, with a disability have less than high school education. Now understand these are, these are, this population is, is 21 to 64. So this is not your 18 year olds that just haven't quite completed yet. If we go down to the next one, 25% of the um, population without a disability have nothing but a high school diploma. That number jumps to 34% when you talk about the, those with a disability. And we're identifying that with a, um, like a, a diploma scroll. 31% of our population without a disability have a either had some college or a two-year degree. That number jumps to 32% when you get, when you go to the percent with a disability. And that is the closest you get to equal right there at that some college or a two-year degree. Because when you jump to our four-year degree or higher, 35% of those who do not identify as having a disability have that, 
have either a four-year degree or higher. Only 15% of the population ages 21 to 64 that identify with any type of a disability have a four-year degree or higher. And I have to admit, as we go through these slides, I this is was original presentation for educators and about why higher education can be so helpful. Um, just kind of keep that in mind that I am coming for this as from a higher education background. So as we look at employment rates for um, less than a high school diploma with a disability versus without a disability, 67% of those surveyed without a disability, but less than a high school diploma were employed. When you go to the um, those with a disability, that number drops to 22%. Looking at just a high school diploma with a disability or without a disability, 76% had a, a full-time sustainable employment. On the, the, with any disability, that number drops to 33%. If you look um, the two-year degree, this is where the percent of the population equals out. It was thirty. It was thirty-one percent and thirty-two percent, respectively. But when you look at the employment rates at this level, you've got eighty percent that have a two-year degree without a disability. It's forty-two percent with a disability. Now you look at the four-year degree, 86% with a four-year degree or higher of the population that without a disability um, uh, that identify with a, uh, as not having a disability are employed full-time. When you look at the with a disability, it is 57%. And this is my favorite slide of this whole thing. If you look at the population of without a disability and no high school diploma, they have a 67% employment rate where with a disability and a, a four-year college degree or higher, that percentage is still only 57%. And with that 57%, we know that only 15% of the entire population attains that level of, of, uh, of education. And uh, this is my um, citation is where I got all, I got all of these numbers from disabilitystatistics.org. Um, very, very interesting and very, very enlightening uh, website. So yeah, um, there is definitely a disproportion when it comes to accessibility, you know, um, employment and what people I think perceive those at least with disability with a visible disability can do are capable of and uh that's really all I've got back over to you Tim and Laura just a, a quick question for you on this um a lot of this a lot of these statistics reference people with 
either visible disabilities, known disabilities, or people that have disclosed, um, probably not people that have not disclosed their disability. Is that right? Exactly. Um, this is from the American Community Survey that is done by the same people that do the census. It's run, I think it's either every year or every two years versus every 10 years. Um, so yeah, they had to self-identify on the questionnaire as having a disability or not having a disability. Um, and you can break it down further. If you go to disabilitystatistics.org, which is run by Cornell University, um, you can actually go in and you can look at it by specific disabilities. Um, I did not get into the weeds of all those numbers today because we could have been here for a really, really, really long time. But yeah, um, it's a um, it's an interesting just to go sit and sift. They have a little uh, thing on their website that you can just go down through and pick with a disability, what without a disability, age range, employment, all these different things, and you can just look at these numbers. And then they actually break it down by state, which is even more um, astonishing. Great. And uh, Brendan, you wanted to make a comment on this as well. Sure. Yeah, I want to put that on. Those are great statistics, Laura. Thank you. Uh, it's It shows what the real, uh, how the world is and what the real, reality of it is. And education aside, um, So there's a Pacific population in the disability. For example, say you have a deaf a deaf person. You have a, we might have uh, more access to we have more problems too that we, to get a job. Like we have communication barriers, and then we have people who say, "Oh, I'm not going to go to work because of that. I, I'm not going to work because I have to not only apply for the job, but I also have to fight for my accommodations and everything. And, and that's hard for someone just trying to get a job." Or you have a generational acceptance of staying and, and taking the SSI or SDI, Social Security Disability Insurance. And so some people are just not willing. I don't want to work. It's too hard. Like I worked at Meta and, as in, and I had a disability employment resource group and it didn't really get, get, add any benefit. You know, a lot of problems with that perception is that I, I don't have, a, I, people are afraid to tell me or afraid to see, to, to make sure, people are afraid that I am just not good at my job and it just depends on what happens. And sometimes it depends on where the company is and where the area of the company is. And that all is so dependent on people's employment. Brendan, if I, if I may ask you a, a, a little bit, a, a follow-up question on your conversation. You know, one of the access requirements that you would have is for a sign language interpreter for a job interview. Do you see that being a barrier to someone having to hire, uh, a, you know, another person to help you with your interview? That's a great question. Thank you for that. Uh, a lot of people won't. I, you know, I could talk about this for three hours, but I won't. I'll try to keep this concise. But I've been looking for a job now for about eight months. And I have a hard time because every time I want to talk with a recruiter or a hiring manager, I have to explain myself all over again, saying, hi, I need this. I hopefully you'll accept that I need an interpreter or not. It's on the onus is on me to ask them for something or say and explain to how you get an interpreter. Now, in a high level position, there are a few deaf people. 
Um, and so that's, that's the everyday problem you have. So say you're working at McDonald's or Amazon warehouse, then you'll see all the time they're ready. They're provided to provide interpreters. And that's different than like a high tech position. There's only a few deaf people. And I really have to explain every time to a hiring manager, hey, and I don't want them to be afraid. And I know they are. They're going to look at me as a deaf person and just kind of brush me off, you know, and I always have to go in with that hope that we'll be able to get through that just that beginning process. And other companies are like, can we just text? Can we do it on Zoom and text back and forth? And because they don't want to hire an interpreter and I can't force them to hire an interpreter. So I just kind of have to go with it. And that makes me look less because if I don't type fast or I misspell a word or it's not fluent as it is with an interpreter, I'm out of the job. I'm done. Or you're right, the cost consideration. Some people, oh my gosh, how do I do this? You cost so much because of the interpreters and everything. If it's a big company, uh, they have a big budget. If it's a small company, it's harder to work with them. They're, they're more concerned with the everyday daily budget of things and, oh, okay, uh, I'm going to go to this person who I have to, you know, spend less on. Thanks, Brennan. These are important things for, for people to consider. Uh, Harshid, you wanted to comment on this as well. Yes, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we always read the equal opportunity on most jobs that, uh, that are filed out there. But what does equal really mean to each individual? Um, for me personally, I've un been employed, unemployed for quite some time now. And, you know, knowing my skill sets, it feels like I have to go back into the wood workshop and, you know, go get another skill. And by the time you go gain all of these skills, you still find yourself where, you know, employments you might have a couple gigs that might sound appealing you know but when getting through the process of it all it doesn't turn out to be a, a profitable or employable job for for lack of better terms so i think you know the fact of that a person needs to go learn new skills every so often so for example learning a screen reader once you're losing sight um I did that process. Um, I don't know how to read Braille so far, but I want to go read, learn that process. Now, yes, that's going to help me in, in, in an employment situation, but is it really going to help me or is it going to enable me to do better in life? Um, when I look at it is learning something like Braille, I could probably be a host or what have you and read all the questions through Braille and not have a screen reader yapping away in my ear. So I would be more um, engaged with my audience. But for example, you know, the jobs that are available nowadays, they are quite some, uh, a few remote jobs, but it takes a whole process to get to those remote jobs. Because when you start looking online, they're like, oh, you got to move to this state or that state. And some of the agreeables aren't that easily uh, recognizable or, you know, you have to watch out. It's not a scam because I found out out is, you know, we're being preyed on as disabled people that people throw scams out there just to get your information and, your, your, you know, for other scam stuff. And so it, it, where do you kind of draw the line between, hey, it's easy to go find a job. And then once you get to that job, okay, I'm using a screen reader, but then I need a script to use your voice over IP phone system. Do I have those resources? Uh, is it 
easy for me to call my local agency where I live or am I going to be able to find somebody that's remote that's going to be able to teach me again those skills because ever so often it feels like we get thrown back into the bucket and say okay go learn WCAG WCAG where, where, who web content accessibility guidelines well within that I feel that when we take some of those parameters and we teach people as I am every day coming on to office hours I get to learn from the other perspective I'm kind of tired of learning in my own disability pool because we're all trying to do the same thing, but we're not teaching the counterpart about how can we just be equal because we all like to go to the restaurant and enjoy, enjoy a good meal. So how could we do this together? And I think uh, th this discussion is really important and thank you so much for bringing this about. Thanks, Harshid. Um, Michael, you'd like to chime in. Oh, sorry, the interpreter used the wrong, wrong name sign, Michael. Um, I wanted to add, thank you. Thank you, Tim, for your follow-up question. I appreciate that, what had, you know, Brendan had said pertaining to interpreters. Um, I think that's really a big issue that's happening for many deaf people right now um, when they're applying for jobs and positions. Um, allow me to give a little bit of background information about specifically for deaf people in job searches. So um, I was actually born deaf. Um, I never heard a sound in my life. Um, for many people who are born hearing and later become deaf at a later age, it is very different. It's a very different experience. So um, I'm kind of speaking for the group of people who were born deaf uh, and never heard a sound um, or very little. So the challenge that we face compared to those hearing people is that hearing people when they're a baby, they grow up and, um, you know, they grow up the same, but hearing people um, really, I mean, it, it's those people in those groups, you know, like if you're reading a book, let's say they can hear, you can hear the news, you can hear things going on around you. Um, hearing people hear all of the words, all of the information, um, and all of the rules and everything, what comes for this or what comes next? They learn grammar. Um, deaf people are never, never able to hear grammar. They're only learning grammar through uh, that context of learning it in class. Not They're not learning it organically. So when I'm writing um, a word like stuff, let's say, um, you don't add the S, like if you're learning how, you know, like for stuffs, um, and I keep forgetting that. If you're talking about more, lots of different stuff, I would write stuffs to make it plural. And they'll say, no, you don't need the S because you don't hear the S, right? Um, I don't hear that on an everyday basis that people aren't saying stuffs. Um, so with that information, I kind of have to keep that in mind. So for when we're talking about specifically for interviewing for jobs, um, a high percentage of deaf people who apply as a deaf person um, to a company um, like a residential school, often deaf people will apply to an organization that's deaf owned, deaf run. There's less of a chance um, if you apply to a hearing organization that people there will be able to communicate in sign language, right? Versus a, a, an organization that has deaf people, deaf owned, deaf operated. Now, when, um, I know that many of you would be shocked to find this out, but, um, you know, I agree that moving forward, um, if there's any deaf person who applies for a position for a job in a hearing company specifically would receive um, questions in advance. That would be very helpful. 
Um, the reason we would like this is my first point would be that when you sit down and um, you have different people, let's say, um, if you do this without a script um, and the interpreter is hearing the question for the first time, um, the interpreter has to take the time to process that information first. So they're processing the question themselves from English into American Sign Language, making the translation. Then it gets to me. And then I have to, in my mind, process, okay, what are they asking? What is the question? What is the meaning behind the question? They're asking me if I want this or this. And so I have to do my own processing and try to figure out exactly what the question is that they're asking. And for example, let's say, um, it's like, like if a question is double negative in English. So sometimes in English, people will say, is this your, is this, would you not agree that this is, you, you, that you dislike this or something to that effect, right? A double negative um, is often used, used in English. So I have to kind of figure out exactly what they're asking. So when I hear the question, I'm like, oh, that's what you meant. But sometimes the interpretation or the signing is not matching the English. So... I'm like, so I'm wondering if deaf people should have the questions in advance. If you're wondering that, they should. Um, it's not really cheating, like some people might think. Reading and being able to think about my response and having the response ready, um, you know, here it makes the follow-up question can be added then by the hearing person. So you, I know that I'm making a good match linguistically. And so um, if they're looking, you know, they're not really looking at my skills. The question is more about, how you respond to the question, right? Um, so to make it accessible and fair for the deaf person, having those in advance or any other person with a disability, uh, I think for example, someone like a hearing or uh, maybe uh, maybe they need more information as a deaf person, a hearing person might need more, but you know, I think that um, they can apply that to the next question. And I think the same thing with like what Tim, Tim was saying. So if you would please give those questions in advance to your applicants, it would be very helpful. And the interpreters as well to have access to that. It makes it go much smoother. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Uh, let's go back to Laura. Yeah, um, thank you, Michael and uh, Rashid and Brendan. Um, and I think too, sometimes that one of the things I've always wanted to do is educate both employers, HR people about the fact that, you know, we want to work, we want to do, you know, we want to contribute. And there's a um, idea that, you know, we also a disability does not equal mental functioning all. Um, because I can't see doesn't mean I can't think. Because I can't see doesn't mean I can't hear. Because I can't hear doesn't mean I'm not smart. And I think sometimes they think either that there's a there's a lot of misconceptions in HR. And that's why I um there's an entire website, um, the job accommodation network that um I've handed I've handed uh employ I've handed pamphlets from them to different employers I've worked for um, at different times because they were arguing with me about what my what what my rights were as an employee or what what they could and could not or did and didn't have to do. Um, but yeah, this is extremely so I, I do want to say I think part of it's lack of education. 
And it, it's kind of sad that those of us with disabilities have to have to be so educated. I I made one, I made a comment when I worked for one big box retailer that I almost had to be a I almost had to be a uh employment lawyer to do my job on a daily basis at a big box retail store as just in a just as a, a, a floor employee because of the things that my management and that did not know. Thanks, Laura. And I, you know, I hope more will have discussions like this, right? It, it a lot of it, just as you said, is just education. And sometimes it's it's um it's just simply awareness just to realize, oh, wait a minute. Um, you know, this this small change would help someone out uh, and, you know, we'll give them a chance. Uh, so sometimes it's not a, a major comment. I forget the the exact statistic, but um, for access requirements or accommodations, there's a statistic that says most of those, I, I think it was greater than half, uh, don't require any cost. There's no additional cost to those. Uh, there certainly yes. is to some, but uh, so yes, keep that and, in mind. And the other thing too is, um, I, I don't want to stand here and say, because I have been on the other side of it and I actually managed to fight and win and I'm not going to go into details, but I had a manager who seriously did not like me because of my disability and things were happening to me in terms of my schedule, in terms of my, in terms of what I was offered as far as duties at that company based on the fact that the that my manager really thought did, did not like me and that was only based on my disability and uh so th there are times where it becomes it, it becomes unfair in those ways those 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 and I will say those situations are not every day but when they do happen they are real and you and they need to listen to the um employee Thanks, Laura. Uh, Brendan, you wanted to add to this again? Yes, <clears throat> Laura brings up a very good point. Um, that's a big issue uh, that I've had with managers going from different jobs to, and having issues with me and the disability that I have. And I think, you know, they're, they're trying to understand how to reach me or work, excuse me, work with me as a person. Deaf people have different issues, different problems than any other people with disabilities. Um, I, you know, if sometimes our facial expressions will make us look mad and we're truly not, it's just how we communicate. And so hearing people will misunderstand how we communicate and they'll assume um, that we're angry or being more aggressive when they really are and they don't like that. I think there's a misconception about that. And so I have to explain, no, it's just how deaf people communicate. Um, and so, but they don't want to hear it a lot of times, you know, and I'm like, they just say, well, you know, I'm sorry. And they, they don't want to hear it. And they, or they think I'm lying or they think I'm exaggerating. And so I think, I wish people in general, you know, saw what a person with a disability goes through. Like they can see our perspective, you know, and they would kind of see the, true issue. That's a problem. Thanks, Brendan. And, you know, there's a movement out there to change the, the phrasing from accommodation to access requirements. Um, so I've definitely seen a bunch of conversations and, you know, imagine that change when it's like, hey, this is just what I require to access this job, as opposed to it sounding like an add-on that has expense. Um, this makes it much more, uh, uh, you know, a, a more common request, you know, don't hesitate to check that little box that says, do you do you need any special requirements? Um, don't be afraid to do that. That You know, the more of us that do it, the more that uh, makes the process common for the, the hiring managers. 
Um, so keep that in mind. And by the way, a, a, a common access requirement in today's age is to ask for the questions ahead of time. You know, I think a lot of uh, employers and interviewers like to throw that element of surprise to see how you'll react. Um, if you're not comfortable with that, uh, you know, ask for that. And not all employers are doing that, but some are. And, uh, you know, let them know that that would, that would benefit you to get those questions ahead of time um, so that you can be prepared to give them a, a good answer. So let, let's jump into the questions. So, uh, so Mitchell, what's our first question? Tim, our first question is in from TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Are there any hints or helpful suggestions for those with neurodiversity, such as Asperger's syndrome or autism, to be able to conduct a successful job interview process from the perspective of a person seeking employment? Thanks, Mitchell. Let's go to Albert. Yeah, this is a, a great question. Um, actually, uh, for me, I, I'm neurodivergent. And um, uh, what I usually do is um, I actually uh, disclose. Uh, rather than disclosing my disability, I say that, oh, uh, like I need these accommodations. Like, you know, uh, I need these things um, put in place for me to be able to uh access the interview and um i i clearly communicate that from the very beginning um and if they don't accommodate then i the way i think is that maybe it wasn't the place i should have worked in the first place you know because if they are not going to accommodate even from the interview process then i can already see the future of of my work what my uh, work life is going to be so um and 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 also remember that um, it, it's not just the employers interviewing you, but also you interviewing them uh, to determine if it's the right fit. So when I get rejected, uh, I try not to think of it as like my, I try not to blame myself because that would discourage me in from moving on and applying again for other companies. But rather I think about it as, Oh, like, you know, like, um, just like a dating in a way, oh, we weren't the right fit. We weren't, you know, uh, you know, match for each other, you know, um, there's, it's no one's fault. Right. You know, so uh, I think of it more in, in a, that way. Also, uh, one thing, um, when I share, when I said that, uh, I, I share my, I share that I need, I have accommodation needs. Um, I usually use the first phone call. Uh, recruiter phone call opportunity to do that. Um, and the reason is that um, if I ask for accommodations um, after the call via email, usually I feel like, you know, oh, like, you know, uh, we you've already passed the phone interview and now we are going to set up an interview, uh, uh, in-person interview. And then, um, but like, like there's less, I, I, I asked for accommodation, but you know, it's one email, right? But rather like on the phone call, uh, while on the first phone call, uh, if I ask questions or like, you know, do you have any, um, uh, like, do you provide these accommodations? Um, then it's more like, um, I can get the response faster and then I can ask again, uh, things like that. Um, also try to ask about like companies values, you know, like what is your company's values? 
And what that does is actually a lot of companies do uh, do have the diversity inclusion kind of value or mission statement and things like that. And you ask that to recruiter directly. And um, um, uh, what it does, I personally think what it does is that I'm actually reminding the recruiter that, hey, your company has this mission in diversity inclusion. And then I go about, oh, so, you know, what are some of the uh, concrete examples or like what are some of the uh, uh, accommodations that you you provide or, um, you know, and then so it kind of opens up the conversation. It makes it easier for me to uh, ask for accommodation because you already said that your company uh, has this mission for diversity inclusion. So, you know, like it'll be hard for them to just, oh, you know, uh, we don't provide that accommodation, you know, things like that. But, you know, I think the challenge here is that, uh, a lot of times companies request for like, you know, uh, official documents or like what reasonable accommodation, you know, like, but reasonable, uh, we need to think about like, it, uh, we need to think about, um, employers need to think more about like why they are providing accommodation. Like what's their reason behind? Like, are you trying to meet the, bare minimum legal compliance? Are you just trying to be, trying to, you know, avoid lawsuits versus are you trying to pursue a value of inclusion and create a, a inclusive team, an inclusive culture? That is completely different uh, 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 goal, right? So um, if your company's mission is to create an uh, inclusive team, organization, then uh, obviously reasonable accommodation doesn't really make sense because what is reasonable? That's very subjective. And uh, if you, and, and in that case, if you are trying to ask, oh, is this reasonable or not? The best way to answer that is asking the employee directly, uh, like, because what they ask is reasonable. <laughs> That's my opinion personally. Yeah. That's great. Thank you, Albert. Let's go over to Brendan. So before, when we were talking about interview questions, that is something very important. That's definitely to, a key to ask for that in advance because people with ADHD or other neurodiversities um, have a hard time processing things on the spot or they'll, they might miss something. So to have that to prepare in advance is great. And also at the same time, it helps the interpreter on the interpreter side, looking at the deaf perspective, then interpreter knows the context and knows how best to support or what to expect. And thank you too, uh, Albert, for that, for asking for accommodations and everything. I always think about that too. When I, before, when I was at Meta, I didn't have an interpreter. So that it was a lot of misperceptions and there was no real lack, there's a lack of communication and everything. I thought I shouldn't have to ask because it's a big company and um, I was wrong, obviously. So to anyone who just don't avo avoid it, ask for accommodations, they will provide most of the time. I haven't had a problem since maybe one or two times, but uh, there's still improvement now and it's been more improvement now than 15 years ago. Thanks, Brendan. Let's go over to Mandy. 
a lot of you um, have made the excellent point that sometimes it is just that education that the employers need to realize that they don't need to have all these concerns. Um, and typically you'll need to practice some self-advocacy uh, a, a lot more than maybe anyone else just to ease the employer's mind that you you can do the job and don't just don't leave that open to what they're thinking about it um you can feel free to explain how you use your accommodations and just don't leave them uh, don't leave it up to their imagination and in the united states uh, we have state vocational services available to job seekers with disabilities that will help them get the services they need such as training and um, the equipment that will accommodate their employment uh, they, they can also connect you with job developers or job coaches and what they do um, they may help you with creating a resume applying for jobs getting practice such as mock interviews that'll help you build some confidence and they also provide those initial supports in um, navigating the start of the job if you need that thanks mandy this is great uh let's go back to albert yeah uh i want you to mention because i'm really passionate about mental health um and this question seems to be coming from the ap applicant side with with disability i wanted to mention to them that um again please do not blame yourself because that's what i have actually uh, done um that was my mistake um and and for that context, I wanted to share a quote. Um, I love the movie Interstellar. And um, uh, there's a quote, um, uh, Dr. Brand, I think he, he quotes from the poem, right? Uh, he says like, you know, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of, a, of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And I really like that quote, you know, um, and I think it, um, uh, what I'm trying to say here is that um, resist and defy, you know, continuously fight for it because honestly, um, if, if I blame myself, I feel like I'm knocking myself down, but it's, I'm actually not the fault, right? Like it's the inaccessible world mismatch, right? Um, so keep, resisting defy, uh, defy and keep uh, fighting for uh, your own rights. And I think that, I think it's really important, although it sounds very mundane in a way or basic, but I think uh, trying to remind yourself, you know, um, have some kind of system, uh, like a mental uh, recovery system. For example, like if after your job interview, I'm going to read these quotes or like, you know, after I get a rejection letter, I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, look at something or uh, paintings or pictures that will remind me of my uh, mission, you know, or, or purpose or things like that. And uh, so that you can keep, uh, keep resisting, keep, keep fighting um, and keep applying because it's a number game in a way too, right? Um, you just need one opportunity, right? Like, uh, uh, you, you just need one opportunity. You just need just one person to believe in you. Right. So I wanted to say that. And, um, uh, and to the employers, um, actually before employers, uh, to employees who are applying, another thing I want to say is, um, build a story. I, I, I think that's really, really helpful. Like, um, you have, you probably have the best story, uh, among, many of the applicants, 
because you've grown with a lot of the challenges, what are environmental factors that you had to overcome and how you overcame, you know, lessons you learned. And usually that is a huge bonus for soft skills from the employ employer side, right? So build a, build a story. And um, people uh, who go through those challenges, we have more self-awareness, you know, for example. And, and, and trust me that when you try to reflect back and what, what were some of the challenges that I went through and then how did I overcome that? You start raising your self-awareness and realize that, oh, I actually have overcome a lot, a lot of challenges. And from that uh, experience, I've actually, I realized that I gained a lot of skills, you know, too. And when you share that with actually um, uh, other people who have not gone through those challenges, you'll be shocked how, how capable and how competitive you, you are as a candidate, right? Uh, for something that is, so, you, you took it for granted, right? Like in a way, like it was, it was such a natural thing. It was like a, you know, obvious thing that I, you thought everyone does, but actually not, that's not true. Not everyone has that skill. Um, and, um, uh, for the, for the employer side, I wanted to mention that, um, I, I watched it, I, I, I watched a documentary, uh, called, um, Born Reach, um, uh, by, What's the name? Um, director Jamie Johnson. So Jamie Johnson, he's the uh, uh, actually heir, uh, I think grandson of the Johnson and Johnson company. And uh, and in this documentary, what he does is he films the um, uh, different heirs, right? People who are born rich, basically, extremely rich. So they don't have to work in a way, right? Like, uh, because you have so much money. Well, like, why would, why would you work? Like, I can just spend money. You know, I don't have to work. But in that documentary, what I learned is that actually work is not just about money. And, um, uh, people who are not working were actually not happy because they didn't ha feel like, you know, there's a meaning in life in a way, right? Like work, labor. I personally think that it's also a, a basic human rights. And I think that it actually gives people meaning. And I think it's one of the most essential components in life that uh, helps you, uh, that, that that constitutes happiness in life. So I personally think that, you know, um, for, for uh, employers, um, like creating opportunities for, and equal access to everyone and giving labor, uh, giving opportunity to work um, for everyone is, is, I think it's a basic human rights in a way. So uh, just wanted to mention that. Thanks, Albert. So many great thoughts in there. Um, you know, you talked about uh, the skills that are built. You know, I hear this all the time, right? People with, with, uh, multiple types of disabilities have had to overcome problems so many times in their life that uh, they're problem solvers. They can solve problems in ways that uh, that others can't. And that skill can become very valuable as, as a candidate for a job. So this is, this is a great discussion. Uh, Mitchell, let's go ahead to the next question. All right, and is uh, Perry Miller from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Given many deaf people are in workplaces with no interpreter, is there a phone app available that will translate the spoken word into sign language? And Michael. 
Oh, well, uh, I just want to add one more thing, a tidbit here before I answer this question. Um, and I forgot to mention it prior. In terms of interpreters, often people bring the interpreter for me in a work environment and say, hey, here's your interpreter for you. And I always respond back, no, 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 no. That interpreter is there for you. I don't need an interpreter. Hearing people, you're having to use the interpreter to communicate with me. So you flip the script a little bit. Um, so just keep that in mind. And I always say, hey, you know, deaf people, deaf workers, the interpreter is here to the deaf workers. But it's, you know, I never say for you. That's one thing to mention. Now, to answer this question... To be honest with you, I don't think we will see that happen um, in my lifetime to have an app. Maybe in the next decade, maybe maybe longer. Let me give you an example. So now, right now, the word run. Um, if you, As you know, the word run, you can use it so in many different sentences and contexts. Uh, for example, I would sign, and, and so you can watch this sign and see the difference here. So the water is running. So this sign for run. I am running the meeting. Different sign for run. I will run the committee. Another different sign for run. I, uh, my stocking has a run. My nose is running. There are so many different ways to sign that one English word run. So, and, you know, as, as uh, Michael or Mitchell here, you've sneezed. So bless you. Uh, your nose might be running. <laughs> so that causes problems for an app. And I do know there are some people who will show an app that says, um, please run the, let's say, I'm just trying to think of a word here. Uh, maybe, okay, we'll go to, please stock the shelves. But maybe I'll think when you say stock, does that mean like stocks in, in the stock market? So I want to put stocks from the stock market on a shelf or something. And an app will say, please stock in stock investments. So it won't use the shelf. So it'll use a different sign instead of using this sign, which should be stock the shelves. I don't need all those English words in there. So that's, I just don't think the apps are maybe a hundred years before that actually really is a credible form of communication. But I'll, I'll let Brendan, if, and I can see Brendan laughing there too. All right. Yeah, let's go to Brendan. Well, thank you uh, for that point, Michael. Yeah, and you know, captions are not perfect. We all know that that like automatic captions aren't perfect. 
Um, our audio description on the phone is not perfect. Sometimes it's not there. Or you'll try talking and it'll say something different or maybe your internet connection is no good and it doesn't work. So I just, I wouldn't depend on that. But there are other ways to do it. For example, like Meta, we, I didn't have an interpreter tons of times and I'd sit there and kind of do an app um, where you could do not, notes app and type back and forth. And that was okay. Uh, kind of a low tech boy some people would talk into their their phone and then that would show me the captions like a high-tech option you could say for sign language translation you're right it would probably be a long time since we had an app or ai that would be able to understand the complex range of signs and emotions and the difference between the different words um asl to english like michael pointed out like run, that sign has many different translations for that one English word. And or look and look or look and search. They're, they're two different kinds, but you could use the same word. Um, two different signs, but the same word. So there'd only be really basic signs, something very simple, like in a hotel, do you want a room? Well, obviously I'm there for a room, you know, it's a hotel, but something like that to have these phrases set up. But if it's a complex situation, Forget it. It's out, period. Thanks, Brendan. Great conversation. Uh, let's go on to the next question. Chris Clark is uh, here from Tempe, Arizona. Appeals to employers to hire applicants with disabilities emphasize fairness and inclusiveness or even pity and charity. What about adding self-interest? Many other disabilities have superpowers that can strengthen the hiring organization. Let's go to Laura. Totally agree. And I and I like this. Um, quite often employers hire based on legal requirements or, you know, the more the the, you know, because they have to versus what is best. And yeah, there are times that different doesn't mean bad. And uh I I like this, Dr. Clark. I like this a lot. Um so yeah, I absolutely think that it comes back to educating those employers about what you can offer. And one of the hot buzzwords in employment sometimes is cross-contextual skills and or, you know, transferable skills. And I think that there are special skills and transferable skills that um, employees with disabilities have so yes, I, I totally agree that we need to educate our employers on those types of things. Thanks, Laura. Let's go over to Brendan. I think that's a very good example um, for me as a deaf person. Um, I really definitely want to work as a person with ADHD. Um, I call that my superpower, really, because I'm able to do um, to multitask and I can focus on lots of different things. So that really was good for me um, in the past. Um, I can do multiple things at, at the same time. So, you know, it's great. And people are like, how are you doing all this at the same time? And I think that's part of my superpower. They're like, wow, that's amazing. I'm like, they're like, good for you. I'm glad you could do that. So um, at the same time, companies don't always like things like that because they want to know who in the organization is doing what, because they want to make sure they have the right person doing the right job. So, but as a person, you know, they want to make sure they're hiring the right, you know, right person for the job. And so, you know, there's lots of different possibilities with that. And I, you know, I mean, that can, you know, like things like Walmart, there's a big difference, right? So it really depends on the company. 
Thanks, Brennan. Let's go over to Michael. Thank you. Yeah. One of, I think that one of the biggest benefits of hiring a deaf person as a deaf person, uh, we have a superpower. We definitely do for sure. Um, the reason we have a superpower is we can't hear anything. So, um, I mean, really since about the age of 13 to now, um, you know, and I won't tell you my age, but, um, you know, there are many different jobs where, um, you know, you can do them at the same time. And so, you know, I used to work for Blockbuster Video. And if you remember Blockbuster Video, and I would work for, you know, like, gosh, you know, these big companies where they would have like a factory and they do lots of different things, have lots of different duties. And so, um, you know, like, for example, like, you know, like I'd kind of be lonely almost like there would be no one around me and no one to talk with and hearing people would be all distracted and talking and chatting and I'd be here doing my work and staying focused. And often I would tell you 99.9% .9 of the time of all of the jobs that I've had up to this point, um, they always tell me, you know, take your time, you know, you finish things so quickly you know, take your time. And so, you know, we don't have anything else for you to do. So there's no rush. And I'm like, well, okay. Um, and so if you want me to get my job done, I thought that was what, you know, you should hire deaf people if you want the job to get done, right? Because we're focused and we're ready to do it. <laughs> That's great. Thanks, Michael. Let's go to Robert. As a low vision person, kind of mildly low vision, I have to make my screens bigger and fonts bigger. Um, and I, I like this strategy and aspect of calling a superpower. So in an interview, that can be a terrific strategy to emphasize what I have to, what, what my skill sets have developed to uh, compensate for my, my needs, which is uh, tighter organization skills. I have to pay it to pay attention to detail much more, more closely. So I think the super, uh, the superpower uh, strategy, I think is a really neat aspect. Thanks, Robert. Let's go to the next question. And Dave Troutman from Edmonton, Canada asks, uh, our local technical institute has a department supporting students with a disability. Would it be helpful for corporations to have a support department for staff with disabilities just as they do with IT support for all staff? Great, let's go to Harshit. I totally agree that we should have this implemented, but the other aspect is is asking for your needs. So um, there's a there's a two part of this is one institutes and colleges all mostly have a, a disability service of some sort, and if they don't, is to advocate for one. Uh, but when it comes to corporations, is having that centralized need for the company to be better, especially with uh, websites and uh, other aspects of accessibility, can be really impactful to that organization in a good positive way. So I think uh, if we let lead our corporations to a better pond to drink out of the water, uh, they will be really accessible. Thank you. Uh, Laura? Yes, um, I just wanted to follow up on partially on what Hershey said. And every college and university that gets any form of federal funding is required by the Department of Education to have at least one person responsible for accommodations to the student. Um, I could do a whole hour and we could talk all about my favorite phrase, 
IDEA, which is what governs accessibility in K through 12 equals success. ADA, which is what you're now under when you're in college and out in the work world equals access. And that's a total mindset thing. Um, and it starts with the, with uh, students in, in higher education having to self-identify as having a disability. We could probably do a whole hour on that. Um, but it's hard because even in the university where I work, there's this great division between the employees and the students. And they aren't even thought of the same way. Um, and it's, it's, I, I find it a, a lot harder as an employee to have a conversation about my needs where if I was a student, they kind of know or they kind of understand how that pipeline even works. Whereas an employee, there's just confusion as to who you talk to, how it gets done and where, where it comes from. Thanks, Laura. Let's go to Albert. Yeah, so um, I personally think that it is uh, very helpful um, to have a central organization um, so that employees cannot uh, don't have to share their uh, disclose their disability to every single coworkers they meet when they ask for accommodation, but rather you know you could just uh, uh, guide them to maybe a, a designated uh, person in uh, in the office and they can just verify or or you know if there's a specific uh, things um, and also that department can act as a, a, a like educating um, uh, teams on how to. Um, uh, build an inclusive uh, teams and how to how to accommodate and things like that. Um, but I think it's also important to remind that uh, uh, that you know we shouldn't uh, fall into the pitfall of uh, just you know putting all the resources away to the side and to to this one department and rest of the the things don't really matter and you just take care of that and trying to meet the bare legal minimum. You know, through that organization, but so I think it's important to have that organization centrally integrated and uh, uh, work with the central teams, administrative teams, so that um, uh, it's it's an actually uh, functioning uh, uh, organization. This is great. Thanks, Albert, and uh, such a great conversation today, and on such an important topic. And uh, you know, keep some of these things in mind. Uh, people with disabilities have had to overcome problems throughout their life. So there are problem solvers in, in ways that, uh, that non-disabled folks may not be. And, uh, you know, please meet their access requirements. Let them have a fair chance at these jobs. Uh, the, in the best case scenario, you should be asking candidates what their needs are for, uh, for applying for the job and in the workplace. Uh, as opposed to them having to come to you and ask, it'd probably be a great idea to add that in your uh, in your standard verbiage. If you have any requirements, please reach out. Um, so, so keep these things in mind. Uh, so many great points to talk uh, that were discussed today, and we look forward to just more conversations uh, next week. We're going to come back and we're going to kind of review topics to talk about in the future for Accessibility Saturday. So please come and join us next week. Of course, join office hours throughout the week. Uh, check out the topics there. Uh, subscribe to the email if you haven't already. 
Uh, we want to thank our crew today. Uh, as always, just keeping this show running and hopping. Uh, thanks to the producers for all the questions. So many great questions. We, we of course, had some left on deck. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to those at some point. We're going to save these questions because they were, they were really great. And um, uh, to the panelists for being a part of this today, just uh, so many great conversations. Thank you so much for that. And uh, just for some reference, uh, as we traverse these questions today, we traveled 37,448 miles. That's over 60,000 kilometers. Um, and uh, for, for a good scale, that's about 298 million bananas that we traveled today. So. Um, thank you, everyone. Thanks to our interpreters today. Um, uh, you know, as always, uh, just such a great job in, in keeping this show accessible. We appreciate you uh, being here. And thanks to everyone. Uh, keep joining us on Accessibility Saturdays and throughout the week. Have a good day.